All right. Well, good morning, everyone. Oh, I still have this one. <laughs> that was weird. Uh, good morning, everyone. It is uh, good to be with all of you uh, this morning. If you would, go ahead and turn in your Bibles with me to Matthew chapter 11. Matthew chapter 11 will be in verse 28. We uh, are returning to our study of the book of Matthew, our series, The King and the Kingdom. We took a few weeks off to just uh, do our best to address everything going on in the world and country and church right now for the last two weeks. But this week we are returning uh, to the book of Matthew. So while you're turning there, I want to tell you a story uh, about a little boy who in 354 AD was born on the northern shores of Africa in what is modern-day Algeria. And this boy's mother was a very devout Christian, and she did her best to pray for her son and to uh, teach him the way of Jesus and, and teach him how to follow Jesus. But the boy's father was a different story. He was an absentee father. He was hardly in the picture at all. And on top of that, the, the father was just a, a through-and-through pagan. Just imagine somebody running after the, their own desires as much as they possibly can. That was this boy's father. And it would turn out that the little boy would uh, tend to take more after his dad. So this boy was born to parents who did not agree and were, on the, and were not on the same page. And so, and so his home life growing up would have been very conflicting. There was not a sense of settledness and unity and peace. And at this time, northern Africa was under Roman rule. And so when he was at home with his mom or hanging out with uh, some of his local friends, he would have you know, spoken his native tongue. He would have been proud of his African culture and heritage. He would have practiced the, the culture and the customs that, uh, that were his own. But when he was out in public, he would have to act like a Roman citizen. He would have to speak Latin and he would have to pay honor and tribute to Caesar. So he was what we might today call a third culture kid. So my wife Lauren actually knows what it is to be a third culture kid. She did not spend uh, her childhood developmental years growing up in one culture or in her native culture. She grew up uh, living in Germany and Japan and Korea. It's just kind of this amalgamation of culture and language and heritage and customs and you know me as someone who spent the first 25 years of my life in a 60 mile radius it's bizarre to me but Lauren actually feels somehow more comfortable in a place where she does not know the language when she can't even tell you how to get to the grocery store like she somehow thrives in that and likewise this little boy did not have a a true sense of home or belonging he would be wondering, uh, am I African or am I Roman? Which language is mine? Which heritage is mine? I don't feel like I fully belong to either one. Therefore, I don't feel like I belong anywhere. I don't have this strong sense of home. I am homeless and restless. But despite all that, this little boy was brilliant. Like goodwill hunting kind of smart. And starting at age 11 and throughout his teenage years, though his family was dirt poor and could not afford to educate him, he was so smart that he received scholarships to some of the best schools in the world. And now as a young man, he, uh, as he got into school, he figured out that his wheelhouse was in languages and in rhetoric. 
He loved learning new languages. He could master them quickly. And then he loved learning how to express ideas and captivate people and hold people's attention. That is what he loved. And so I just want all of us to try and imagine this now young man's first day of college. If you've been to college or if you know you've just kind of left the nest for the first time like if you can remember what it's like to be 18 or 20 years old just remember what that felt like you're excited because it's something new but you're scared because mom and dad and home aren't there you you want to impress everybody you want to make a name for yourself but you're just so insecure because you don't know who you are yet and so this this now young man has left his no-name podunk hometown behind. He has traveled across the Mediterranean Sea, and you know, he knows he's smarter than all these other incoming freshmen, you know, having to take math 101. He can blow them out of the water. So he tries to put on an air of confidence, but beneath the surface, he's terrified. Not having his father around. He doesn't know what it's like to be a man. Not having a true sense of home he doesn't know who he is or where he belongs he came from poverty and now he's rubbing elbows with the wealthy and the cultural elites just trying not to embarrass himself so he's he's like this every 18 year old kid and that he's insecure but he's also this weird mixture of einstein and a fraternity pledge And this is where the young man really started to take after his father and he did what most 18 year old insecure fraternity pledges do partied hard and he loved it the more drinking the better the more girls the better the bigger the dare the better he he basically tried to try to reach as high of a level of debauchery as he possibly could and he loved it so fast forward through his college days his intellect has carried him through he has now secured uh, prestigious teaching positions in rome and milan the intellectual powerhouses of that day he's got his dream job he's got you know several mistresses on the side that he calls regularly and, and he's just reveling he cannot believe that a kid from northern africa has made it he spent 35 years climbing the ladder chasing after the next thing and the next thing thinking surely college will fulfill me surely drinking and girls will fulfill me He has spent his entire life searching for the thing that would bring him fulfillment and peace, the thing that would finally help him to to not have to search for the next thing. So one day, this guy's just walking around, you know, out in the market or, or out throughout the neighborhood, and he hears a random child say a random phrase. The kid said, take up and read. So this now grown man just grabs up the nearest book that he can find and he flips it open to a random page and puts his finger down and only by chance did he happen to pick up the letter of Romans written by the apostle Paul and he happened to open to Romans 13 verses 13 and 14 which say let us walk properly as in the daytime not in orgies and drunkenness not in sexual immorality and sensuality not in quarreling and jealousy But put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. And so this happenstance encounter where he heard a random sentence from a random kid and read a random book applied perfectly to his life and it eventually led this man to become a follower of Jesus. And he did not just become a normal Christian. He became a man who changed the course of not only church history but all of human history. His writing served as 
some of the primary sources for John Calvin and Martin Luther. So this guy from Northern Africa writing in the 4th century laid the groundwork for the Reformation. We would not be in this room doing what we are doing today in the way that we are doing it had it not been for this man. Some of you may know who I am talking about. I am talking about the man named Augustine. As he would go on to become known as Saint Augustine. And I can't help but to always think about Augustine when I read our passage for this morning. Augustine's story is all of our stories. He had a restless heart. He was always looking for the next thing, always chasing after the next thing, and he always came up empty. It's just what it is to be human. And so I always think of Augustine when I read Jesus' famous words here in Matthew 11. Jesus famously says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and I will give you rest. And so rest is what Jesus is offering to the tired and weary and heavy laden soul this morning. Now, this book is Augustine's most famous work by far. It is a book called The Confessions. And on the very first page, in the very first paragraph, uh, Augustine writes his most famous thought or idea. It is one sentence that fully captures all of his theology. And and I think he got it directly from Jesus' words to us this morning. Augustine starts out his book praying to God and he says, You, God, stir man to take pleasure in praising you because you have made us for yourself. And our heart is restless until it rests in you. My heart is restless until it rests in you. So my heart has been searching the world over for the thing that will bring me rest. I've spent my whole life looking for the thing that will satisfy me enough so I don't have to look for the next thing. Every worldly thing that I chase, everything that I go so hard after, it cannot bring my heart the rest that I so desperately desire. And so it might sound like a bit of an odd way to frame the conversation, but for Augustine, he equates salvation with finding rest. Not the kind of rest where you just, you know, kick off your shoes and lay down for a long nap. But for Augustine, the salvation is the kind of rest where your heart finds a home. Where it can drink deeply and be satisfied and can stop searching. So does anyone here have a restless heart? Is anyone tired? Are you burdened or heavy laden? I think it's safe to say that everyone here is tired and burdened and heavy laden on on any of so many levels. I mean, let's just start with professionally. We are in Douglas County. And and Douglas County is an interesting place. It's uh, the eighth wealthiest county in America. So it's not Manhattan, it's not San Francisco, but in terms of income and lifestyle, it is very close. So so you don't make it in Douglas County unless you are unusually gifted 
unless you put in the time. You put in the long days, week after week and year after year after year, and you work your butt off. Now, hard work is a good and God-honoring thing. I would never say anything against it. But are there some people here who have put in the hours and the hours and the years and the years to climb the ladder to reach the next promotion and all of it has taken its toil? And yeah, today's Sunday, but tomorrow is Monday and you're tired. Or maybe in a family sense, are you tired? You've got kids that you have no idea what to do with. Marriage honestly isn't going so great. And there's this pressure, especially in the church, to have this picture-perfect, put-together, never-struggling family that you can show off to all the other Christians who show up on Sunday. So I wonder if the struggles of family life are weighing on some of us. And, and then on top of that, there's a global pandemic going on. And so over the last few months, people have lost jobs or been furloughed or seen a decrease in hours. And so it, it's just hard to make financial ends meet. We've been quarantined and kept apart from one another. So we've been feeling uh, isolation and anxiety for months and months and months. And, and, and that's just adding up. And then on top of all that, when the world was already on fire... Throw in all the political and social unrest of the last month and a half or so. And as it turns out, not everyone in this room agrees with you, and not everyone in this group agrees with me, and we disagree. And we say we want to be a gospel-centered church where Jesus and nothing else is what unites us, and turns out that's actually a lot harder to do than just talk about. So we're all having difficult conversations, trying to learn how it's the best and most compassionate way to pursue both justice and peace. And so I know that after the last six weeks, we are all exhausted. Spiritually, are you worn down? There are so many ladders to climb. There are so many quotas to reach in the world. And is it possible maybe you've imported some of that kind of thinking into your relationship with the Lord? You start thinking of him as a demanding boss who will only love you based on your recent performance. And so you muster up the energy to get up early and read your Bible and pray for a week. But then life catches up to you and you get burned out. So then you don't spend a minute with Jesus for two months. And now you think that God loves you less. And so the totality of your walk with Jesus becomes this performance-based effort to try and earn and keep God loving you. And it's just a hamster wheel that keeps going and going and going and never goes anywhere. And so you just get exhausted and you get off. And so to anyone who is tired, for any reason, all that I want us to do with our remaining time is to slowly walk through Jesus' words and to let the Spirit of God take the Word of God to comfort our hearts and call us to rest in the gospel of Jesus. So once again, Jesus says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. And you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Something that is unique about these words is that if you read through all four of the gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, 89 chapters of biblical text, this is the only place where Jesus tells us about his own heart. If you read through the Gospels, you will learn a lot about Jesus. You'll learn about his birth. You'll learn about his prayer life. You'll learn about his discipleship strategy. You'll learn that he was a, an incredible preacher and, and a phenomenal healer. 
But this is the only time in all of the Gospels where Jesus himself opens up to tell us about his very heart. And at his core, at bottom, the center of his being, more than anything else, Jesus describes and defines himself as being lowly and gentle in heart. And that's just been something that I've been chewing on for the last few months. Because if I were God, to be honest, I don't think gentle and lowly are the words, the, the, the two words that I would want to use to describe myself. Greedily and selfishly, if I were God and I wanted, and I only had two words to describe myself, I would use, I am powerful or I am all knowing. I would go with these big, strong, kind of overwhelmingly strong, glorious words. And Jesus is all of those things, but when he wants to describe his own heart, he says, I am gentle and lowly. The Greek word translated gentle here occurs three other times in the New Testament. First, it occurs in the Beatitudes, where Jesus says, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. He could have, you can just as easily translate that, blessed are the gentle, for they will inherit the earth. Second time is in Matthew 21 when Jesus is being described as the prophesied king. It says that the king is coming to you humble, mounted on a donkey. He's coming to you humble. He's not on some stallion or steed. He's just coming, coming in humble and meek and gentle on a donkey. And thirdly, this word is used in Peter by, uh, by Peter. Where he gives an encouragement to wives and says, But let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart, with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. So, in, in the three uses of the word in the New Testament, the word is used to mean meek and humble and gentle. Combining all of these meanings together, one commentator had this to say He said that Jesus is not trigger happy. He's not harsh or reactionary or easily exasperated. He is the most understanding person in the universe. He speaks softly and he moves tenderly. The posture most natural to him is not a pointed finger, but open arms. Jesus is gentle. And then he is lowly. This Greek word for lowly means humility, but not Humility in the sense of being a virtue of, you know, someone who doesn't draw attention to themselves, but humility in the sense of destitution, of being thrust downward by the difficulties of life, like someone being from humble beginnings. In the Magnificat, the song that Mary sings while she is pregnant with Jesus, this word is used to speak of the way that God exalts those who are lowly and of a humble estate talking about an unmarried pregnant teenage girl. And in Romans 12, Paul uses this word and he tells us to uh, not be haughty, but to associate with the lowly. Referring to the socially unimpressive, the downtrodden, and the outcast. So overall, the meaning of this word lowly and Jesus' point in using it is to say that Jesus is approachable. He's He's not a socially intimidating person. 
It's like an unmarried, pregnant teenage girl. He's like the homeless person on the side of the road. He's not this high and mighty, intimidating person that you need to clean yourself up before you can come and talk to him. You don't have to have an impressive resume with a long list of credentials to get an audience with Jesus. Wherever you are, whatever station of life you find yourself in, you can walk straight up to Jesus because he is easily approachable. He is lowly. And he will meet you where you're at. And, and, and Jesus describing himself as gentle and lowly, it actually reminded me of a passage that we looked at uh, maybe eight months ago here at Redemption Parker and Redemption Castle Rock. If, if you were with us, you'll remember that last fall we went through the framework series. It was an overview of the Old Testament, looking at some of the key weight-bearing passages of the Old Testament, showing how the Bible is one continuous story. And one week we looked at Exodus 33 and 34. So if you would, would you actually go ahead and turn to Exodus 33 and 34 with me? It's the passage where Moses makes a pretty bold request of God. He says, God, would you show me your glory? Uh, the, The song that we sang, Rock of Ages, is actually about this story where in order to answer Moses' request, God has to hide Moses in a cleft in the rock. And so God partially reveals himself to Moses by showing him his goodness visually. And then God goes on to fully reveal himself and fully show his glory by speaking his name to Moses by providing us with a definition of God given to us by God himself. And so in Exodus 34, verse 5, God describes himself this way. He says, I am the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands or for thousands of generations, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. And so in the New New Testament equivalent of our passage today where Jesus defines himself and his heart, Jesus says, I am gentle and lowly. And here in the Old Testament, the very first words out of God's mouth that God uses to describe himself are merciful and gracious. God does not reveal his glory by saying, I am the Lord, the Lord, exacting and demanding. Or the Lord, the Lord disappointed and constantly frustrated with you. No, the first words out of God's mouth is that he is merciful and gracious. So much more merciful and gracious than we realize. Moving on, next God says that he is slow to anger. Again, if you were with us when we first looked at this passage, that that phrase, slow to anger, literally it means uh, long of nose. And so no offense to some of the, uh, we'll say senior saints, seasoned saints in the room, but does anybody just have that really old grandfather who's got a really, really big nose? All right, so at this point in in, in his life, like, he doesn't really get angry at anything. He just kind of sees something that he doesn't like, and he just... He doesn't lash out. He doesn't say anything. It's just kind of all through the nose. And God is like that really kind, gentle, patient grandfather. He has such a long fuse. He is so patient with us. Dozens of times throughout the Old Testament, we read of God being provoked to anger. 
It takes a lot of provocation. It takes a lot of repeated offenses to get God to express his anger. But we are never once told that God has to be provoked to mercy. His anger requires provocation. It takes a lot of needling and pushing the envelope to get God to react in anger. But his mercy and his graciousness, that is what is pinned up and ready to gush forth towards his children. We tend to think that it is God's anger that is pent up and spring-loaded, ready to pour out over us and smite us at a moment's notice, and that God's divine mercy is what is slow to build. And something that we have to earn and accumulate over a long period of time by our good performance, but just the opposite is true. Because God is slow to anger, it is his divine anger that takes a long time to accumulate. It's something that God is not eager to display, while it is his love And mercy, that is what God holds in abundance and what he delights and desires to pour out on us at just the slightest provocation. I mean, if you just kind of take a step back and from a bird's eye view, look at these verses in Exodus, their asymmetry should startle us. So over on this side of God's character, we see that God is merciful, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, abounding in faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands and thousands of generations, forgiving iniquity, forgiving transgression, forgiving sin. All of that is right here. And then on this side, but who will by no means clear the guilty. So by God's own definition of himself, mercy and love loom large. And his anger is present. But if I can be bold enough to say it, it is almost as a necessary afterthought. And I just wonder how many of us actually think about God this way. How many of us, when we think of God, imagine a kind, good, loving, gentle, tender, heavenly Father who is gushing and pouring out his love and mercy on us. And how many of us, like me, when you think of God, imagine this grumpy old man in the sky who is always disappointed and looking down on you, waiting to be appeased? So I've I've got a second book up here. Um, It's called Gentle and Lowly. If you want to know what the best book of 2020 is, this is it. I know we're only halfway through the year, but this book will not be topped. It is called Gentle and Lowly, uh, written by Dane Ortland. And I'm just going to be honest, uh, 70% of this sermon is from this book. Like sometimes when you just read something that you know you cannot improve on, you just don't even try. So thank you, Dane, for this morning. And if you've been at RP or RCR for a while, you know that we have talked and we emphasize having a gospel culture very much. And we got that from Dane's father, Ray Ortland. And just through his preaching and his own writings, Ray has done so much to teach Mark and Brad and I the importance of not only having good, right, and sound gospel theology, but wielding and carrying and expressing that right doctrine in a loving, kind, and warm and welcoming way to create a Jesus-like gospel culture. And so Dane is one of Ray's sons, and Dane wrote this entire book on just those two words where Jesus describes his own heart gentle and lowly. So I was reading this book for the first time a few months ago 
on a plane, and uh, I'm not much of a crier, but I had to struggle to keep it together. And I just want to read a little bit from this book, and, and this is aimed at the people like me who make better legalists than Christians. It is for the people who know of the finished work of Christ and believe in the grace shown to us in Jesus, but for some reason it is just so easy for us to default back to a performance-based way of relating to God. And so Dane said this. He said, The Christian life is a long journey of letting our natural assumptions about who God is over many decades fall away, being slowly replaced with God's own insistence of who he is. This is hard work. It takes lots of sermons and a lot of suffering to truly believe that God's deepest heart is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, gentle and lowly. The fall in Genesis 3 not only sent us into condemnation and exile, the fall also entrenched in our minds dark thoughts of God. Thoughts that are only dug out over multiple exposures to the gospel over many years. Perhaps Satan's greatest victory in your life today is not the sin in which you regularly indulge, but the dark thoughts of God's heart that cause you to go there in the first place and that keep you cool towards him because you cannot bring yourself to actually believe how kind and loving and good God really is. So turning back to Matthew 11, when Jesus says to each of us, come and follow me, all who are heavy laden, we can go to him with confidence about how we will be received. When we come to him with a broken and a contrite spirit, when we stop trying to earn his love again as we sang, it, you know, could my zeal, no respite, no, could my tears forever flow? Nothing in my hands I bring. Simply to the cross I cling. When we come to Jesus with empty hands, with all of our mess and all of our garbage still clinging to us, he will not greet us with anger or condemnation. He will greet us like he greets all of his prodigal children. He will see us walking over the horizon from a long way off and he will burst out into a sprint. He will interrupt our well-rehearsed and measured apologies and he is going to hug us and kiss us and welcome us back with kind and loving arms. Because that is his heart. And he is so much kinder than we realize. He is gentle and lowly in heart. And in telling us to come to him and assuring us of his heart for us, Jesus then goes on to tell us what he will do when we do come to him. In verse 29, Jesus says, Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. So here Jesus is using an agricultural and a farming metaphor. A yoke is a wooden bar that is placed over the neck of an ox so that it can pull a cart or a plow. And a yoke could be put on just one animal or it could be shared between two animals. And so in a shared yoke, one of the oxen would be much stronger and much more experienced than the other one. And so the stronger ox was more schooled in the commands of the master. And so it would guide the other ox in the master's commands. And by coming under the yoke with the stronger ox, the weaker ox would learn how to obey the master's voice. 
So Jesus says, come to me and put on my yoke. I'm going to carry it with you. Now, there are a lot of yokes out there, and we put on many of them. We put on the yoke of professionalism and success, trying to make it and climb the ladder. We put on the yoke of making it into that social circle or making it onto that sports team or getting into that college or dating and marrying that kind of person and having this kind of perfect family and being seen all of these kinds of perfect ways that we imagine for ourselves. Or even put on the yoke of earning God's love. And there are just so many yokes that the world offers us, but the truth is that they are all crushing. They are all unattainable. They all promise fulfillment and joy and meaning and rest. But the more that you give them, the more that they will demand. The more that you follow them, the more that they consume you. And the more that you drink and eat of them, the hungry and thirstier you become. Because none of them can offer true and real and lasting rest to a weary soul. But Jesus says, come to me. And take my yoke upon you because I have carried the weight that you cannot carry. I have carried the weight of your sins. I have carried the weight of the cross. If you come to me in repentance and faith, if you give me the full weight of your sin, then I will give you the full weight of God's pardon and his righteousness. I can end the toil. You can stop looking for ultimate fulfillment and true rest in things that don't satisfy because I am what your heart was designed for and you will only find rest when your heart rests in me. So towards that end, let me pray for us. Jesus, it is only because you are gentle and lowly because you have condescended to us, you have taken on our flesh and have carried the weight of our sin. It is only because of that that we can approach you now with any confidence. You who knew no sin became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus, you know our state and our frame and our nature. And so I just pray that for those who are still carrying so many heavy yokes that, Jesus, that you would bring them to an end of themselves, that you would show them that nothing that this world has to offer can truly satisfy, that we can only rest and have peace when we are resting in you. And for those who have already tasted and seen that the Lord is good, but who still struggle and who doubt, who have dark thoughts of you, I just ask that by your spirit that you would gently and kindly take those wrong thoughts away. Would you show us who you truly are of being merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.